Welcome to Cover to Cover, a podcast featuring musical conversations about an album or song which has changed and enhanced someone's life. I am your host, songwriter Matt Tarka. Thanks for joining us today. We humans connect with the presence of music in our own unique way. As an artist, a concert goer, through our headphones, or as something that simply lives in our everyday background. Our guest today comes to us from Hudson, Ohio, just outside of Cleveland. He is one Kevin Conaway. Kevin is a musician, and he also works for a supply chain for a tire company. In terms of what Kevin might be creatively working on at the moment, well, incidentally, he just released a six-song EP titled A Deafening Silence. I'll be sure to drop a link or two in the show notes to discover Kevin's music if you are unaware of it. He's also working on a full-length album to hopefully be released sometime in 2021. That record is going to be titled Someplace Better, and that's being produced by songwriter and producer Michael McFarland. Kevin is also working on an untitled satirical Christmas EP. Inspiration-wise, Kevin loves discovering new music, and he tries to keep up with current music. He maintains a public playlist on Spotify filled with great new music from a bunch of artists called Caught in the Current. He has also long been inspired by Canadian artists, which we will soon find out. In terms of any favorite sports or activities, Kevin loves baseball. To participate, loves to ski. In terms of any favorite TV shows to watch or stream, Kevin's currently binging Letterkenny. Some other favorites are BoJack Horseman, Black Mirror, Big Mouth, Stranger Things, Ozark, Breaking Bad, Better Call Saul, Friends, Seinfeld, The Office, Scrubs, Futurama. The list could go on. Does Kevin have any pet peeves? Well, lacking consideration for other people and driving with your hazard lights on. Could not agree more, sir. For our conversation today, we're going to be discussing Rush and their album, Hold Your Fire. Hold Your Fire was recorded at the Manor Studio in England, Ridge Farm Studio, also in England, and Air Studios in England, plus McClear Place in Canada. Peter Collins produced, James Barton served as the engineer, Bob Ludwig mastered Hold Your Fire. An art direction, Hugh Sim. You might be wondering where Hold Your Fire fits into the overall discography of Rush. Well, it's the 12th studio album out of 19. This is the final album in a span of four in a row that were heavily influenced by electronic and synthesizer music in the 80s. The album was followed by a live album. At the time, Rush was releasing live albums in cycles after every four studio albums. Hold Your Fire was released on September the 8th of 1987 for Anthem Records. So without further ado, let's welcome our guest to the conversation, Kevin Conaway. Kevin Conaway, it is such a pleasure to uh, get back in touch with you and and, uh, talk about Rush and their record, 
Hold Your Fire. Thanks for coming on the program cover to cover and spending some time with us. Absolutely, man. Thank you for uh, for having me. I'm, uh, I've been looking forward to doing this. My, my pleasure. So we are talking about Rush and the record Hold Your Fire. What compelled you to choose this particular offering from this band? Oh, man. Um, so I spent weeks, months probably, um, obsessing over what to choose for this episode, uh, as you know. Um, yeah. And yeah, I, uh, I, th- I think, I think at one point I, I, I decided on, on an album and then second guessed it and waffled on that and then decided on another one and second guessed that and third guessed it and finally we arrived here. Um, so I, I think when, when you had originally asked me about this, it was, and it was probably back in, I'm, I'm embarrassed to admit this, but I, I want to say it was at least two months ago or so. And since that had happened, um, in early January, Neil Peart, uh, Rush's drummer, passed away. And uh, Neil was, well, Rush is one of my favorite bands in general. But even though I'm not a drummer, uh, Neil Peart has been one of the biggest musical and personal influences on my on my life, really, um, out of any musician. And so when that happened, I just kind of went into this fit of listening to nothing but Rush's music for at least a solid month, month and a half. Uh, I think I went through their entire catalog at least a couple of times. Uh, So I figured as I'm doing all of this, and I knew in the back of my mind I had to pick an album for this podcast episode, I figured, you know what, I'm listening to all this this Rush stuff. I I, I think I should really talk about a Rush album. And this album, admittedly, I mean, I, objectively, it's it's not their best album. Um, I it, it's it's not my personal favorite album by them by them either. Uh, I think it would be in my top five for them, but it's, you know, it's definitely not my favorite. But there's something about this album. It's it's one of the earlier albums that I got into by them. I I would also consider it to be their most underrated album uh, because if you know, all you have to do is look online and look at some of the reviews about it, and you'll find a lot of people kind of trashing it. Um, it's generally accepted by the Rush fan base as, as being one of the, if not the worst, if, then maybe in the bottom two, three, or four by them. I think it's a brilliant album. I think it's their most underrated album, and uh, it, that's that's more or less why I wanted to talk about it. Talking with Kevin Conway here. Hudson, Ohio's Kevin Conaway here on Cover to Cover with Matt Tarkas, specifically <laughs> specifically about Rush's Hold Your Fire. And, um, you know, Kevin, you alluded to this for a moment, uh, but can you describe for our listeners who makes up this band? It is a power trio, right? Yes. Yes, it is frontman and bass guitar player, uh, Getty Lee lead guitar player Alex Lifeson, and drummer and also lyricist Neil Peart. Do you have a particular story that you could tell for our listeners as to, you know, this album from 1987 is, is available in the uh, the index of, of a record store? How did that... How did that come about for you? Did, was there was there you just kind of discovering it organically, or was there somebody within your circle of family or friends that said, you know, hey, you should really check out this record. It might, it may be underappreciated, but you know, dig in. 
How did that How did that happen for you? Yeah, you know, it's it's, it's funny, um, and I'm I'm sure you're experiencing this during the during this podcast and talking to people. But man, I I think whenever it comes to our favorite bands and our favorite albums, everybody remembers that moment where you where you first discovered them or where you first heard that band or where you first heard that song or that album. And yeah, Rush is no exception for me. Uh, it was. 1996. I was 14 at the time, and I was in my early teens. I was I was really big into classic rock, and I had this uh, this I think it was like an Iowa stereo system, like three disc stereo system thing in my room that I would just blast music all the time, just sitting in my room. Yeah. And uh, I I played yeah, and I played a lot of the. I probably annoyed my mom like crazy, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> and and maybe the neighbors sometimes too. <laughs> right. <laughs> But uh, so I was I was listening to a lot of uh, the the local classic rock station uh, in Cleveland here at the time. It was WNCX, um, and '96 Rush released their Test for Echo album, and yeah, like classic rock radio usually like when a older legacy band releases a new album, they might play the new single a couple of times, and then that's really about all the promotion that they give it. Then I'll go back to the back catalog, and I just happened to be listening in my room one day. The title track "Test for Echo" ended up coming on, and this was—I, I, you know—I may have—it's possible, actually probable—that I had heard Rush's music before that, but I wasn't aware of it up until that particular moment. And I just remember hearing this song and going, "Man, this song is freaking awesome! Who is this band?" And I, like, I remember like sitting there waiting for them, like, "Please say who this band is," because you know sometimes they wouldn't. <laughs> That <laughs> yeah. day before you could just go look it up. <laughs> yeah. yeah, before you could like use something like you know Shazam. No, no product right. like you intended, but Shazam. <laughs> right, right, exactly. <laughs> so I'm just like, please, please say who this is. And like at the end, they 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 find that's the new one from Rush. Rush, who is Rush? I have to figure out who this band is. This is awesome. So I, I ended up going out and picking up that album, and then I wanted to hear more of their stuff. I, 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 the, going to my local Camelot Music or whatever it was at the time, yeah. uh, like they had a ton of, of CDs there. I'm like, man, I got to hear some more of their stuff. So I ended up going to the library and and renting all of the Rush that they happened to have in stock at the moment, which was, I believe, I think they had a CD and two vinyls and hold your fire happened to be one of the vinyls that I rented from the library. And man, I put that on and just something about that album. I, I I've always loved the, like the eighties sound and, and that type of music. And this was, and I'm sure we'll probably get into that, but this, this was one of their albums that was sort of in that vein of style. And man, every song on this album just, just really hit me. And for for a while until I until I got into some of their you know they were more classic albums. This this was my favorite album by them for a little while. Talking with musician songwriter extraordinaire Kevin Conaway here on cover to cover with Matt Target. Extraordinaire, wow. extraordinaire. <laughs> There's no hyperbole here, my friend. <laughs> we're just throwing that word around, huh? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Cats out of the bag. <laughs> <laughs> We're talking about Rush here, and uh, specifically 1987's "Hold Your Fire." And um, 
Kevin, where does this record fit into the discography of the band? And a sub-question for that I'd like to ask you is, do you think that this record is vastly different from their previous work from the 70s and early 80s? Or, you know, had they been kind of building for this type of sound in, in, in the late 80s at this point in time? What, um, what say you? And, um kind of a two-part question and the answer to both is yes <laughs> so so rush uh they, they first they first came out in 1974 um and they they released albums at a at a pretty wild rate um so you know 1987 being 13 years later this is album number 12 in their catalog so they were releasing albums at a clear that's prolific yeah 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 that's that's pretty crazy. <laughs> so they kind of they went through. It was it was interesting um, during their first couple of decades. Where I don't I don't know if this was planned or if it just sort of worked out that way. Um, what they kind of did was they would release four albums and then a live album, and then four albums and then a live album, and then so on and so forth. So this album being number twelve, this was kind of the last in their set of four before another live album when they come out. And it's it's really interesting if you kind of follow their music all throughout that sort of album cycle, I guess, for lack of a better term to use. Mm-hmm. With with each, at least in my mind, with, with each cycle of four albums, that you can sort of hear their sound kind of changing. And and. Granted, it, it it does it changes from album to album, and you can see the seeds of of the changes get planted within the the groups of four as well. But I think it's really noticeable in the groups of four. So you have those those four initial albums in the seventies, um, and they they like the first two or three definitely really have a sort of a bluesy hard rock arena rock anthem rock type sound. They got a lot of comparisons to Led Zeppelin back in back in that time. And then with album four, you can it still has that sound, but you can see a little bit of a shift into more of a prog rock territory. It's it's album four sort of bridges that gap a little bit. Then they put out that live album. Album four, by the way, is twenty one twelve, which is one of their you know considered one of their greatest albums ever. Yeah. Um, then the the next four, you get into the late seventies and really early eighties, which culminates with Moving Pictures, which again is is one of their great classic albums that everybody knows and, and one of their most popular albums as well. Um, probably the most successful, I would believe, as well, too. Uh, so those albums, they, they definitely explore prog rock. They get a little bit into sort of an arena rock type type sound as well, too. And then towards the end of that, you start to see a little bit more focus on melody and song structure and a little bit of the synthesizers creep in, but it's not really prevalent yet at that point in time. Then they put out that live album again. Then starting with uh, Signals, which was 1982, I believe. Um, I might be wrong on that. I'm pretty sure it was 82. The next four albums in a row at that point start really, really heavily featuring synthesizers and electronic music and, and have that more kind of polished and processed 80s sound. It's very, very influenced by New Wave. Uh, it's got a heavy reggae influence in it as well. And it's, it's 
they kind of they do away with you don't hear any more of like the longer ten minute long drawn out prog rock songs. Everything on these albums are all five six minutes or less. Very concentrated on song structure, melody, hook, and and again it's got that heavy synthesizer feel to it. It's so. Yeah. This is just a very quick observation here, Kevin. I'm, I'm thinking mm-hmm. about how you're talking about how they kind of condense their songs in terms of time from, you know, from 10 minutes to five or six minutes. It, 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 by today's standards, that is just unheard of on FM radio. <laughs> <laughs> you know? That's, that's <laughs> a good passage point. after passage, you know, if you're talking about a five or six minute song. <laughs> That is kind of funny. Yeah, I didn't think about that. Yeah, when 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 you're when you're when you're saying that a five minute song is a relatively short song, then right. I guess that that certainly says something about the catalog that preceded it, doesn't it? <laughs> ten movements or five movements as opposed to ten. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Go on. <laughs> oh, that's funny. That's a good observation. Um, <laughs> so. <laughs> yeah, so so there was um after so this album being the fourth in that set of uh, kind of their quote unquote eighties albums, another last album followed that one up and then uh Presto and it came out in eighty nine, I believe. And that started to turn towards backwards focusing on the guitar, making that a more prevalent instrument and and consciously reducing the amount of space that keyboards and synthesizers to take up. And so these this block of four albums that came out in the eighties here, uh, generally they're they're kind of regarded as, as Russia's new wave period or their synthesizer period or electronic period, whatever you want to call it. And it really it it turned off a lot of their fan base. Um especially this album. There's there's just I don't know. There's something about this album that maybe it's because it's the fourth in a row that, that had this particular sound to it, or maybe I, I I think it's it's probably the most polished sounding production-wise album out of these four. Maybe that's it. Mm. But there's there's just something a little bit off-putting about it to a big bulk of the Rush fan base. Um, again, with with me, I came into Rush late. I you know this album came out. In 87, I got into them nine years later in 96. So, it, and as I kind of mentioned, I kind of had an affinity for that 80s sound, a lot of 80s music and 80s bands anyway. So when I had heard this album, naturally I didn't grow up with Rush. I wasn't, you know, I wasn't aware of them. I wasn't a fan. I wasn't alive to be a fan of them back in the 70s. So I didn't, yeah. I didn't grow with them and witness that change towards new wave and synthesizer based music as it was happening and and if I was I honestly don't I don't I don't know I, I, I can't really speculate on, on how I would have taken that but coming coming into my fandom of them late and being able to go back through their entire back catalog all at the same time and just sort of take it as it is that shift towards the new wave and synthesizer based music didn't bother me at all
We are talking with Kevin Conaway here about Russia's 1987 offering, Hold Your Fire, here on Cover to Cover with Matt Targa. And, and Kevin, this feels like a good time to talk about your favorite tracks. Um, would you like to go bit by bit here? Would you like to just pick out a few selections and, um, you know, e- extrapolate as much as you want on why they're your favorite songs? I I am completely guided by you. We can talk about all of them if you'd like. <laughs> uh, sure. Um, so it's, it's not, it's not a concept album, but it kind of had a theme going through it, um, which a lot of their albums do. Uh, they, they, they really only have one actual legitimate concept album in their, in their catalog. And, but a lot of their albums do have sort of a central theme that when, when Neil approaches the songwriting, he sort of keeps that theme in mind and writes at least a large bulk of the songs around that theme. And uh, this album, when he started writing it, he was going to base it around time and just sort of the, the passage of time. And as he started getting a little bit more into the writing of it, it sort of became more about about instinct and, and sort of just how people react to life in general and, and hmm. things that happen in life. Um, yeah. And time time definitely plays a part in a lot of the songs as well. Uh, to be honest with you, it's it's it's, it's interesting when, when I listen to music. Granted, even even though. You know, as we talked about, like we're both songwriters. Uh, you know, like I, I don't know about you, but like the, the part of songwriting that I struggle with the most is lyrics. Uh, so I'll, I'll like melody and music and stuff will come to me pretty naturally, but then I'll just I'll get stuck on lyrics and I'll just agonize over it so much. Um, <laughs> uh, the weird thing for me, man, listening to music and being a fan of music is that lyrics. I swear, they're the last thing that I notice about another band. <laughs> It's a weird paradox about me, I guess. I don't know. Do, do, do you have any anything similar? Or in in terms of just uh, like um, like wordsmithing, what I'm working on, or like coming up with a melody before lyrics? It for me, it's um, boy, I tend to find for some reason lyrics tend to come first, and. Uh, I don't know why that that is. I, I I look at you know things that I write down in notebooks is just almost like faux poetry <laughs> in some in some respects and and just you know that those words can kind of be you know shifted over time. They could either stay in you know kind of a a, a structure of a poem or um, I might have a couple of melodies in in my recorder that that will fit and I try to kind of sort of go back and forth and maybe a, a lyric gets modified here and there, but more often than not, my, my process is always sort of lyrics and allow whatever melodies come up to react to those lyrics. Um, yeah, that's, that's been my process, you know, for the past little while. It's not always a hundred percent like that, but more often than not, I, I need to sort of react to words and then I'll pick up a guitar and, you know, strum along and, you know, whatever comes up, if there's some word that kind of fits that mood of, of the melody, then I go with it. Um, but I never throw anything away. 
<laughs> I never do. I'm I'm sort of a pack rat in that respect. It's like people who still believe in fax machines. They like that hard copy. <laughs> I like I like hard copies of of all my stuff. It's sort of just this weird little standard where I can just go back to it, and it feels it feels real. Like it feels just like a real conceptual idea about to be born at some point. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I definitely feel you on that. Um, I, I definitely I, I like real as well as I'm as I'm holding the final album of this record in my hand. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Um, so does does that does that translate? How does that translate to you as a as a music fan, like listening to music, or, or do you notice the lyrics right away as well, or does that does that come later for you? I think I notice lyrics. I think I'm, I might be the opposite of you. I feel like I I pay attention to lyrics first, and then you know go from there. And you know I, I carefully listen to the melody as well. But if 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 there's some sort of lyric that's really biting, or if it just it, it jumps out as wow! I never thought about an issue that way, or I never, you know, I've never heard that turn of phrase before. That's so that's so cool. Like I'll usually latch on to a lyric first, and then see what kind of like tension or drive, you know, is, is been built around that lyric in that's listening to music. Yeah. And and what's funny about that is I I think I think a lot of musicians or especially songwriters are are that way uh because we we pay so much attention to the lyrics and that's what we tend to notice in music that we hear and listen to and it's, apparently i'm weird in that fact because yeah man like, yeah. like i was saying it's literally the last thing that i'll notice so like when i when i hear a song it's it's the melody and the like the hook that in the instrumentation that'll really get me and then it might take five to ten listens before I start to really notice the lyrical content and 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 sometimes that'll ruin it for me because the lyrics aren't very good or sometimes <laughs> that'll make me even more of a fan of it when I go, Oh man, not only do I love this song, but the lyrics are great too. Um and 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 uh to, to bring back to uh, your your original question that got me off on the tangent, um I think that's one of the things that made me such a huge rush fan is that not only is the music freaking amazing? I mean, you're 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 not gonna you're not gonna find three guys in the band that are better at what they do than than Getty, Neil, and Alex are. But the the poetry that Neil writes as lyrics, and he's got to be one of the most intelligent songwriters I've I've ever heard in my life. And the stuff that he that he manages to put in his songs, whether it's whether it's like crafting a, a science fiction story like in 2112 or whether it's observations about life around you which is mostly what this album is it's it's amazing what he's able to put down um so yeah like going going track by track uh the the album opens up with uh, a song called force 10 which is an allusion to i think like a wind speed um scale or something like that like a force 10 equals a storm um and it's it's funny talking about I think the whole reason I brought up lyrics is that as much as I love this album, I don't think I ever really combed through the lyrics at all that intently. I noticed them and I knew that they were good, but I didn't really really focus and intently comb through them until yesterday preparing for this podcast. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So as as I'm going through all these lyrics yesterday, I'm like. Damn, these are great lyrics. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. 
Yeah, what, what, it was funny. What, I think what, I, I made myself more of a fan of this album than I already was by doing that. <laughs> you know, but, um, yeah. Oh, sorry. No, all I was going to say was, you know, what really threw me off at the beginning was you hear this children's laughter and this choir of monks to open the song. <laughs> and the first, literally the first line that comes after this is, tough times demand tough talk. Yep. <laughs> demand tough hearts, demand tough songs. I mean, right, you know, right there you're thinking, oh boy, you know, that's that, that's a, that's a tension-packed set of little statements right there. I mean, yeah. You you talked about how you know they started writing this record in terms of a concept of time, and then it sort of moved towards instinct. And I think of just the you know the album title, you know, hold your fire. That could go either way. What are your instincts yeah. if you're if somebody's holding their fire? Are they going to release some anger, or are they really going to just hold back and and listen and hear something out and have yeah. that kind of Tough talk as this opening track seems to imply. Absolutely. Um, the interesting th- thing about that opening track too is it was the last one that they recorded. Uh, they, I think, they ended up with nine songs and they were ready to go. And this was the first album that they were that they were working on and they were going to release with the the idea of the CD format in mind. Um, so. So every album that came out before this was less than 50 minutes in length because they were basically adhering to the to the time limitations of the vinyl disc. And with this album, 1987, they they thought more and more people, less and less people are listening to music on vinyl. More people are listening to to music on cassette tape and CDs starting to come out now as well. So they had a little bit more time to work with, and they they now that they had the nine songs, they're thinking, well, it'd be great to add a tenth song and and get past that 50-minute mark. Right. So this song really came, I, I, I want to say, uh, I, was, I was reading about it the other day, this, this song came in like the last maybe two or three days before they were done working at the studio. They, 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 Neil had gotten lyrics from uh, from a Canadian poet who, who had actually had a songwriting credit on Tom Sawyer as well. Uh, so he had sent lyrics over to them for this song, and, and Neil kind of reworked a little bit, bit about them, added his own thoughts and ideas to it, presented it to the guys. Uh, Getty and Alex created the music, and, and within, I think, less than a day, they had recorded Force 10, which became the album opener, <laughs> which is pretty crazy if you think about the time to go on that. Definitely. I don't know about you, but I can't record a song in a day. <laughs> uh, it, it, it usually doesn't happen for me either. <laughs> <It's>, <laughs> some, sometimes a good idea might, you know, it might take a whole day or yeah. you might just like one year or five years. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you know? exactly. <laughs> you're, you're, I've got some that I started sleeping. decades yeah. ago that I'm still working on. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> in the spirit. Yeah, it's. They, um, you know, the band, they've always been great at at getting these really awesome kind of driving high-energy track one songs on every album. And, you know, this song's no no exception to that. Like you said, it opens, it opens up kind of weird. It's got that, that little laugh and then the choir and then I think the sound of a jackhammer or something. But then it then it starts to win, win in with this cool little bass line going and it's kind of fast. The, the tough times demand tough talk lyric, and then it just then it just 
song, man. It's it's really that song's about it's it's basically just about how how you interact with the life around you and how like how you're going to approach your day. Uh, there's there's a lyric in there that I that I love that says. Uh, that says uh, attack the day like birds of prey or scavengers undercover. And it's, so it's, and that's, that sums up the entire song right there. It's how, how do you look at life? How do you approach the day? Like, do you attack it? Do you grab the proverbial bull by the horns or do you kind of cower away from everything? Or are you a scavenger undercover? You know, how, how do you go about life? How do you deal with things as they come at you? Which, you know, that's, Again, sort of a, a theme that will come back over and over again in this album. It's it's it's, it's something that kind of, that that really resonates to me because you know, again, like look at our current situation. Now there's people that are really not handling um, this very well at all, including some of our leaders. Um, and then there's uh, then there's people that that are making the best of it and doing some really cool creative things uh, with it. So, it's, you know, there's, there's the, I guess, two ways that you can look at life, right? Exactly, yeah. You can you can harness the kind of positive creative energy or, you know, give off energy to other people to make everyone's existence just feel better and feel connected to something. <laughs> you know what yeah, I mean? That's absolutely. been the beautiful thing about like just this contemporary scenario that we're in right now where where artists can, you know, can can share things that, you know, people appreciate about things that they've done. Or some people have kind of taken some liberties of late as to share something completely new with the universe and say, Hey, this this didn't exist before. What do you think? You know? Right. Which is really which is really cool, like just celebrating, you know, celebrating the things that make, that give people joy. Absolutely. You know? Whether it's art, whether it's music, whether it's literature, you know, it's just for whatever reason, it just feels like there's just a lot of really good, good stuff being put out there. And it's a, it's a nice communal spirit, if you will. Yeah, absolutely. Sharing of sharing art. We're talking with Kevin Conaway here on Cover to Cover with Matt Targa. We're talking about Rush's 1987 record, Hold Your Fire. And, uh, Kevin, we talked about this first track here, um, Force 10. Following Force 10, we have a tune called Time Stand Still. And uh, there's a cool guest vocal on this track. It's uh, Till Tuesday's Amy Mann. Yeah. Yeah, so this this was the first single off of the album, and uh, man, I think even the most hardcore '70s Rush fan that thought that they sold out and didn't like the uh, the '80s style of music, I think even that guy would admit that "Time Stand Still" is a great track because it's just such a great track. Yeah. <laughs> Man, it's it's got everything. It's you know, it's it's a fun listen. It's you know, it's somewhat upbeat, not you know, not overly. It, yeah, I don't know where I was going with that, but it's a uh, it's got such a great melody. It's got an awesome hook to it. Amy Mann just adds so much to this song, and she was she was the first time that they ever had a uh, guest vocalist come in as well. Um, and it's it's interesting the story behind that. 
when uh, when Neil wrote that line, the, the band kind of all realized that, that that particular line in the chorus was meant to be a feminine line, and and just Getty was not uh, was not meant to sing it. So they they started looking around for female vocalists to come in and, and sing with them, and they were they were looking at they, they, I think Getty had mentioned possibly Kate Bush, or he was a big Bjork fan at the time too. And uh, they weren't really that familiar with Till Tuesday, and Amy Mann was not familiar with Rush either, which is it's kind of funny. Yeah. Um, and I, I want to say it was somebody in somebody in the Rush camp, like one of their managers or somebody like that, that had suggested her and, and given them a couple of albums to listen to. And and the the instant they listened to her, they they said, yeah, she's she's the one. She's got a voice that's perfect for this part. And uh, they contacted her about it, and she, like I said, she wasn't really familiar with, with their music either, but uh, she really liked the song a lot, uh, and, you know, apparently when, when she came in, like, all the four of them had a really great time. She loved loved the song, and she loved hanging out with the guys and stuff, and they, you know, they all hit it off really well, and so it's, it, it's you know, it's, it's cool the way that all worked out, and like I said, she, that, that's the first time they ever had a guest vocalist come in, and it was the last time they ever had a guest vocalist come in, too. They never did it after that. So you, can't, you can't go wrong with Amy Mann. Yeah, absolutely. So yeah. It's, it's such a unique song just just based on that alone. Um, it was also the first song that, he, that Neil wrote for the album when he was really basing it a little, a little bit more about time. And it's it's such a... It's, lyrically, it's such a great song, too, because it's so much about, you know, I, I think at, at this time, point in time, uh, Neil, Neil's, he's, he's such, he's, he's an introverted guy, um, and such, really more of an intellectual, very stoic in his mannerisms, and, and he, all throughout his entire career, I think he, he just always had such difficulty dealing with, with fame and being in the public eye, um, I mean, especially if, if you go back and listen to uh, Moving Pictures and listen to the song Limelight, and that, that song is, is, that entire song is about his struggle to deal with being famous. There's a great line in that song that that, uh, that goes, I can't pretend this stranger is a long-awaited friend, where he's basically talking about how his, his interactions with fans, and, and he just, he struggles to, you know, like, he can't have a fan come up to them and just pretend like, oh, hey, you're a friend, we're good buddies, and he, you know, he just can't do that. He's such a private person, yeah. and um, it's it's you know it's interesting. Like he, he just so so many people that were around him and knew him had such a hard time getting really getting through and, and getting into his inner circle. But uh, like the people that did uh, have just nothing but great things to say about him. Apparently, he's just, you know, he's he was just such this wonderful sweet, caring person to the point where, you know, he would, he would hand write letters to, uh, to his, to his good friends uh, all the time, just to keep in contact and things like that. It's, uh, it's, you know, it's, uh, he, he was truly such a, such a great human being. Um, yeah. but, uh, I, I, again, I'm going off on a tangent. I apologize. But, uh, but again, you know, just being album 12, um, album, album 11 with him, with the band, I think at this point he was starting to sort of feel like not that he was getting tired of it, but but he was 
I think ready to maybe slow down and stop stop going so fast through whether it be with his career or whether it just be life itself. And that's that's more or less what the song's about. It's about slowing down and appreciating the moment that you're in right now and not necessarily not necessarily looking back and pining for your past or anything like that, but just you know, to, to to use the old cliche, to stop and smell the roses, right? Yeah, be more uh, present. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, and it, it, there's a great line in the chorus that goes, "I'm not looking back, but I want to look around me now." It's it's so you know powerful to that message of saying, you know what, life goes so fast, your career goes so fast, you're always pushing forward, like running for whatever the next thing is, but. Sometimes you just have to take a moment and realize that the, the moment that you're in is truly special. You know, look around you, appreciate the things that you have, appreciate what's going around you, because you know maybe at some point later on in life you you are gonna want you are gonna look back at this moment longingly and wish that it was still happening. Right? Like there's there's a another line in the song that says freeze this moment a little bit longer. It's you know cause, so he knows that that right now, right now is when life is good. You know, he's he's gonna yeah. he's gonna want to look back at this if, at one point and look back on it fondly. So, so why not take it all in right now? You know, Kevin, I feel like you know this this could be just just a little add on to our conversation here, and that is Neil is a drummer, and he is also principal lyricist. He's not, you know, he's not, if you're looking at this band from the stage, just for our listeners, he's not out front, if you will. He's behind the yeah. drum set. That's, I wonder how rare this is, where the drummer in a group is the principal or primary lyricist in the group, with Getty Lee um, being responsible for, you know, almost every lead vocal, right? <laughs> yeah. It's, I would assume it's got to be pretty rare i mean we're we're all aware of the drummer jokes right like yeah. Yeah. i mean usually usually not only is the drummer not the lyricist but he's also usually not exactly the most intelligent guy in the band <laughs> <laughs> and the good ones show up to practice <laughs> right <laughs> yeah normally we're just happy if the drummer can play on time and he shows up <laughs> and he's not not Sleeping on your couch. Yeah. Right. <laughs> True story. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> We're talking with Kevin Conaway here. Uh, he's a man just outside of Cleveland, Ohio, here on Cover to Cover with Matt Tarka. We're talking about all things Rush and their 1987 record, Hold Your Fire. Uh, Kevin, after this track with Amy Mann as guest vocalist, uh, would you like to talk about Open Secrets, or would you like to tackle another tune here on this record? Man, I'm I'm happy to talk about every song on this album. Well, let's go. All right, well let's <laughs> let's go with Open Secrets, which clocks in at a meager meager five minutes and thirty eight seconds. Right, as we established, it's a shorter song. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> But, but it's interesting. It's it's a good it's a good sequential track just by the opening lyric, and that opening lyric goes, "It went right by me at the time. It went over my head. 
I was looking out the window. I should have looked at your face instead. Yeah, man, this is such, like, lyrically, it's such a powerful song, and it's it's a song that really, really resonates with me, too. But, um, so it's it's a song that came out of uh, just a conversation between Neil and Getty about people they knew and how, you know, people that would go through life without properly addressing problems that were affecting them, which, mm-hmm. man, is something that I do. <laughs> like, yeah. I don't know about you, but, uh, yeah, I am... I'm really great at not wanting to confront the things that are bothering me. And and I'm I'm assuming like it, and and again that's that's one of the things that I one of the reasons I gravitate towards Neil so much is I also very much am an introverted person personality-wise. Uh so I think man, I think any person that that leans towards introversion on the uh on the scale would really relate to this song lyrically because yeah. you know dealing with whether it's whether it's an argument with a significant other or a problem with somebody at work or just maybe it's even an internal problem um there's there's so much that we do to you know the natural instinct again to bring it back to instinct is mm-hmm. to try and avoid that awkward conversation or that argument and to just do anything you can to get around it and instead of addressing it head on. And usually that makes things worse. And I think we all kind of realize that makes things worse, but it's still, we want to avoid that awkwardness. And uh, really that's, that's what the song is about. Um, Here's another, here's another related lyric here just to get your reaction to. Well, I guess we all have these feelings. We can't leave unreconciled. Some of them burned on our ceilings. Some of them learned as a child. I think about times where stuff was really bothering me, and I'm just staring at the ceiling with my blood boiling. You know? Yeah. You know, just the, the idea of just having just really just difficult thoughts or just difficult days burned on your ceiling. It's just holy crap. Oh, <laughs> that, man, that, yeah. that, that sticks with you. Yeah. It really does. Uh, there's, there's another one that I love in the song that's uh, it goes closed for my protection, open to your scorn. Between these two directions, my heart is sometimes torn. Right. Holy crap! That's and and that just that really not to make on, but that really gets to the heart of the song. That uh, and and I think about any awkward uh, conversation or any argument that I that I knew that I would have to get in eventually. And it's those are the two choices. Yeah. You know, do I want to do I want to just close myself off and protect myself, yeah. or do I want to open myself up, knowing that, that you're going to be angry with me and that I'm going to feel your scorn? You know, like these are the two paths to go down. And such a, it's you know, it, there there's such a desire to choose the first of those when really mm-hmm. we should be choosing the second. Yeah, and the idea of somebody's heart being sometimes torn, I mean, that sounds like uh, the understatement of the year, you know, because either way, whichever scenario you choose, you're opening yourself up to hurt and criticism. Right. It's crazy. Um, After, excuse me, after, after this track, Open Secrets, we have a tune called Second Nature, and... This appears to be 
you know, it's he, he, you know, the writer is referring to some sort of higher power, whether it's political or metaphysical or other. Um, but it starts off with a memo to a higher office, open letter to the powers that be, <laughs> to a god, a king, a head of state, a captain of industry, to the movers and the shakers. Can't everybody see? There's, uh, that's, I mean, you want to talk about tension. I mean, there you go. That's, yeah. <laughs> that, 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 tension is certainly going to be hard to escape in this track. Yeah, absolutely. And it's, um, so it's, it's interesting that the reference to, uh, I, I love how he throws into a God and not just to God. So Neil is, uh, yeah, I, I, I don't, I don't, I don't think I can honestly call him an atheist, but probably agnostic is maybe the the best way to describe it. But yeah. he's also he's also a, a a spiritual person in that maybe not spiritual in the uh, in the religious sense, but spiritual in the way that he appreciates life and and nature and things around him. And and I think that that those things. Uh, give him a greater influence than just simply an than just simply an appreciation for the maybe the beauty or the the beauty of life or nature. It's it's you know coming back to that word. It's more of like it's more of a spiritual influence on him. Uh, yeah. So it's I, I I thought that that was just interesting. Just that simple simple addition of the of the word or the letter of the word word I guess a yeah. Uh, yeah. Before God, that really changes the meaning of that particular line. But um, mm-hmm. but yeah, that song. It's uh, so it, I think it's it's more or less about compromise and about maybe you know if if you're setting your sights for the for for perfection, but you're willing to compromise for something maybe a little bit less than that, but it's still a positive outcome. Uh, so it's you know it's something that uh, is is certainly relatable. You know. In a political viewpoint, you know, if you're if you're looking for the perfect candidate, but maybe you have to you have to compromise for something that isn't quite ideal, but is still overall positive. Um, there, there's there's another good line in there that said, uh, you know, I I know perfect's not for real. I thought we might get close. I, I thought we might get closer, but I'm ready to make a deal. Yeah, mm. it's, it's and it's yeah. yeah, it's more or less about that that being 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 willing to maybe just let go a little bit of of your of your ideals in your head and being willing to work with other people to compromise which you know again kind of goes against your your instinct to just cling to uh, to your ideals and cling to your conviction but uh, you know there's 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 other people out there that you have to deal with and uh you know maybe maybe you don't get everything you want but you can still you can still achieve something positive after Second Nature, we have a track called Prime Mover. And oh, before you know, oh, one thing I forgot to just you know to ask you about Second Nature is uh, you probably heard the uh, the sort of orchestral kind of outro portion of the song. I I thought it was a, a very uh, tasty use of the Casio keyboard here. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Like I said, they uh, they they were, they were into the keyboards on this on this album. 
after I just I just thought I would bring that up for a moment. After second nature, we have we, we have a tune called Prime Mover. And uh, what, what do you think about this track? What uh, is there anything musically or lyrically that really just you know, stands out for you? Um, what do you think about this song? You know, it's uh, it's it's an interesting song. It's it's very lyrically, it's very abstract. Um, so it's at least the meaning that I take out of it is that I think it's it's urging us to resist looking for the explanation for what happens to us in life and, and why why we're here in general, and to just live life for the sake of living life, um, which mm. which is a theme that would come back again uh, two albums later on on the uh, the title track of the Roll the Bones album, which um, which the chorus of of that song I, I, has always stuck with me, which which goes and I'm paraphrasing here, I'm omitting some lines, but it essentially goes, why are we here? Because we're here. Why does it happen? Because it happens. And and I think I, and, and I love the simplicity of how those lines work together in that song, and I think I think that theme is more or less what this song is about too. It's it's, it's about not like yeah, you know, it, it, in a philosophical sense, uh, you know, a prime mover is is the the start of of motion, right? It's the thing that sets it sets whatever is in motion. It's the thing that starts that motion. So. A lot of times, you know, prime mover is attributed to, to to God, but I think this song is more or less saying, hey, you know, in, instead of instead of focusing on the why everything happens, focus on the fact that it's happening. Just you know, instead of asking why we're here, just focus on the fact that we're here and 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 enjoy that and live that, and you know, again, kind of be sort of like in time stand still, uh, you know, be in the moment and just appreciate the things around you instead of instead of needing the reason why they're there, just appreciate the fact that they're there. Very well put. We are talking with Kevin Conaway here on Cover to Cover with Matt Tarka, specifically about Russia's 1987 record, Hold Your Fire. And uh, Kevin, after Prime Mover, Prime Mover, excuse me, we segue into lock and key and another tension filled track here um yeah. <laughs> do you think do you think this was a, a an appropriate spot for this uh particular song to show up <laughs> i think um yeah i'm gonna say yeah I, I i think this this album in general i i really like the way all the songs flow uh with each other and yeah. so so this song is um yeah, so it's the first song that starts off side two of the of the final version of the album. Yeah, and it kind of it it kicks in with that big soaring atmospheric uh, synthesizer intro, and uh, you know you have Getty kind of almost screeching, <laughs> like, "I don't want to <laughs> face the killer instinct." Um, and it's it's a, it's a, it's almost like it's almost an opening track in a way. Um, it's that, and that's man, that's one of the things that I love about listening to albums on vinyl is you kind of you kind of get that sense of instead of the cohesion of listening to an entire album all the way through, you can sort of see the cohesion of of each 
side, a side A and side B of an album too, and you can kind of get yeah. that feel of like this is this is the end of side A. Take a breath, put on side B, and boom, it hits you again. And that's that's exactly what this song does. Yeah, and, like a different array of stories that need to be grouped together. Yeah, yeah, it really is. It's it's interesting the way that you can do that. On you, you know the way that that comes through on on only a vinyl record and not on any other format. Yeah. Um, but this song, and musically, this this was one of the reasons why I love the the '80s sound so much. Is that you know I I think that the the, the keyboards in this song just add so much. It sounds so full and so powerful, really, for lack of a better term. Yeah. That you know it just it's 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 soaring. It's atmospheric. It's just the sonic, you know, wall of sound that that hits you, you know, right from the beginning, and in the chorus, and it's it's. And uh, I, I'm sorry if you don't like keyboard music, but this song is great. <laughs> I don't know what to tell you. <laughs> yeah. Um, you you mentioned you know this theme of instinct. There's a lyric in here that jumps out, and it's it's pretty pervasive. But but one here is. Uh, you know, don't want to silence a desperate voice for the sake of security. No one wants yeah. to make a terrible choice on the price of being free. I don't want to face the killer instinct. Face it in you or me, so we keep it under lock and key. Yeah. Now, I, you know, I, I think of just those waves of emotion that somebody may have experienced as a child, and now you're bringing things up to the present day where it might be a child to adult where you're still facing either the same kinds of anxieties or fears and, and things just completely left un, untold or um, resolved in in some respects. And, you know, there's a lyric that seems to be, I don't know, potentially quoting some, mm, how, do, how do I put this? You know, there's, there's some world history that seems to kind of be getting uh, discussed or involved. I mean, talking about various types of fanatical causes, and you know, there there also seems to be potentially some themes of, you know, um, greed, and some, you know, that that sort of idea, you know, may have been uh, uh, also pervasive in in the 1980s as well. <laughs> yeah, and uh, no, I completely. I completely believe that. I mean, Neil is again such an intellectual person, and he was constantly reading, whether it was whether it was sci-fi or whether it was uh, poetry or whether it was history or whether it was philosophy. Uh, he was just constantly, you know, reading literature, and a lot of times that would those those themes would end up in the lyrics and yeah, you know, yeah, I wouldn't, I wouldn't doubt that there's uh, maybe specific history that he's, uh, that he's referencing there. Um, yeah. This, this really is a song that I've kind of had a hard time interpreting. And uh, I think it's, again, um, uh, pardon me. Um, it's, it's a little on the abstract side. Um, the, I guess like the, the meaning that I personally take out of it is sort of that, you have to recognize that that everybody, including ourselves, have some. Sometimes we have some some not so good urges. Uh, you know, maybe just 
anger or violence or just knee-jerk reactions to things. And I think I think this song is sort of a reminder to to a recognize that they're there and to b then keep them under control when we're when we're trying to deal with things in life that happen to us. Um, one of the lyrics that I love in that one that in, in that song goes, "No reward for resistance, no assistance, no applause." And and I think that's that's such a great line because it hints at you know if if you do resist those urges and if you know if, let's say I walk down the street and somebody looks at me the wrong way or says something to me or whatever like that and I decide not to kill them right <laughs> right, right. <laughs> yeah no, nobody's gonna pat me on the back and say hey nice job not. Yeah reacting poorly yeah. to that situation, right? Yeah, Hold, holding your powder. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> or holding your fire. You know. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> but it's such an important thing to, to resist those, those, those worse urges in us, right? <laughs> Absolutely. We are talking about all things Rush here on Cover to Cover today. We're talking with Kevin Conaway. He's a songwriter. He's a musician. He's from just outside of Cleveland, Ohio. We're talking about a whole array of things related to 1987's Hold Your Fire. Kevin, after this track, we have a tune called Mission. And uh, you know, one thing I, I, I should mention, you know, before we, you know, discuss this track is, did you happen to catch them quoting? the theme to Mission Impossible and the breakdown of the song. Oh, no, I did not. <laughs> Do they really? We can, yeah, it, it sounds that way. Just just little quotes here and there, but we, we can go much deeper into this track. I just wanted to see if you, you, you happen to, to hear the same thing I did. What was, what, what's the quote? Uh, no, no, just musically, just quoting the oh. actual, like, theme to Mission Impossible. It's really <laughs> subtle, really subtle. Maybe it was just it just happened to be in the same key, and and it but it just kind of had I don't know it 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 was it was awful close to just like the same type of emotion to that theme. Uh, that honestly would not surprise me one bit. Um, and again, that's one of the things that I that I love about this band is that yeah, not not only again lyrically they they. They have such serious content, right? Like Neil is such a serious guy, and and musicianship-wise, uh, they're like I said, you're not going to find three guys that are better at what they do than Getty, Neil, and Alex. But man, one of the things that I truly love about this band is that they never take themselves seriously. Like yeah. anytime, yeah. yeah, anytime you see them in interviews or interacting with each other, they're constantly joking around. They they're making fun of themselves. They're making fun of each, of each other. And like even in some of their artwork and stuff, you can see little inside jokes that are that that appear in like the artwork and uh-huh. and uh, yeah, it would in in their live performance and stuff too. Sometimes they'll just mess with each other or throw in little little snippets and in, into the songs that are just meant to be a total joke that you can tell you can tell like when they started rehearsing for the tour they had somebody at some point probably said man wouldn't it be really funny if we did this and then it became a thing <laughs> yeah see if anybody notices <laughs> yeah <laughs> it just it and and then like then they'll do 
like video, like the video screen in the background behind them when they're playing. They'll they'll make fun of themselves or have uh, various uh, just funny clips or jokes or whatever like that. They had, they had one where they had uh, uh, all the South Park kids playing as as the band, which was hilarious too. I forget. I think that was before yeah. the uh, <laughs> might have been before the Time Machine tour. Um, I, I forget which tour it was, but yeah. Like, so they had like a. <laughs> a whole South Park segment based off of that. Like, yeah. So, yeah, that would not surprise me at all if they intentionally, especially given the name of the song, if they intentionally threw in a little Mission Impossible thing there (laughs) just as a joke. (laughs) You're you're probably right. (laughs) Yeah. It's, I mean, I mean, lyrically it's, it's a much more serious. Um, And, you know, in thinking about, you know, not, not to, go way, way too deep here, but I'm thinking about things that happened in uh, 1986 into 1987 when the writing process was likely taking place. I mean, th- there were some pretty heavy events at that time. I mean, you know, everyone in the world, but particularly in North America, was grappling with the loss of uh, Krista McAuliffe and a group of other groups of astronauts that... Um, that were in the Challenger shuttle when it exploded in January. So I, I just wonder if some of that living in the present day, not taking life for granted, I, I wonder if some of those types of you know current events you know found its way into the lyrics that Neil was crafting. I would definitely believe that. Um, yeah, I mean he again he's got a knack for not only drawing on literary influences, but yeah, he definitely. Yeah, he definitely draws on on just what's happening in the world around him at that particular point in time. So that would make sense, absolutely. Um, especially given the name of the song too, that that you know, yeah. Challenger mission fits in with with this. Yeah. Um, so what I take out of this song is that it's more or less about about ambition or drive or like you know it's that that drive to 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 do whatever it is that you want to do, whether that's being an astronaut or being a musician or, you know, being a, a politician or something, but it's, it's mm-hmm. that, you know, not letting anything hold you back and just keeping that that drive, that, you know, that ambition, that drive a lot. Yeah. That that's much more positive than, <laughs> it's much more positive than what I took away. <laughs> But I, I don't doubt that that you know that influence made it into the song. I, you know, there's there's definitely some of that some of that in there. After uh, after mission, we have a tune called "Turn the Page," and um, one lyric at least that jumped out for me was, "It's just the age, it's just the stage. We disengage, we turn the page." And um, I guess I was just thinking about it, and just modern technology is beginning to to reveal themselves in everyday life and popular culture. And uh, mm-hmm. this happened to be the same year as, you know, the advent of, you know, everybody's favorite, you know, gaming system, N- Nintendo. And uh, <laughs> <laughs> I, w- I wonder if, you know, again, just that stuff that's appearing in, in you know, just everyday society is, is making its way into these lyrics here, or if there's, you know, just a much larger... Um, much larger picture at play here. I think a little bit of both. Um, you know, you know he's, he's, Neil is 
so excellent at taking little things that happen to be going on in the in the, the macro world and or micro world and then giving you such this larger macro picture of, of what's going on. Um, and before we even get into that, can we just talk about how freaking awesome the bass line is that opens up the song? Oh, yeah, by all means. <laughs> <laughs> right? It's, uh, spell, it's spellbinding. It's absolutely bananas. Yes. <laughs> I can't imagine seeing this song perform live. <laughs> like, Getty Lee is like literally breaking the speed of sound when he's opening with that bass riff. It's incredible. Yeah. <laughs> it's amazing. Like he's playing every note that's on the neck and chords too somehow all at the same time. I don't even understand what's happening. <laughs> somehow he's doing it. And then he's singing over it, <laughs> and, and they and they yeah. have played the song in live sets too. So he just he just he just does it. <laughs> like, There's no overdubbing. He's Getty Lee, and he can. <laughs> yeah, he's just he's he's from another planet. Truthfully, yeah, pretty much. Um, it's you know, again, I've been a huge Rush fan for a long time. Um, there's there's a local band here around the Cleveland area that does that does a Rush tribute show, and I went to go see that one time. They they were they were really good. They uh, they played the music really well, but it was it was funny as I was watching them because they were they were hitting everything. They were playing everything, and it sounded good. But man, just looking at their faces you could tell just how hard they were concentrating on everything. Like it was just this total constricted look of, you know, it's, it's a look you get when you're holding back a big dump, right? You know? <laughs> <laughs> just, like very tight sphincters, like just everything is you know, uptight, right? Like trying so hard not to mess everything up. And then you see Rush play those same songs live and they're just, they're not even looking at what they're doing. They're walking around the stage. They're making fun of each other and, like, trying to try and crack each other up. And, like, <laughs> it's to, to see, it, you, you almost forget how complex this stuff is that they're playing when you see them play it. And it was it was a reminder to me how complex this stuff is when I saw another band try and play it. And I went, oh, wow, that's right. This stuff's really hard. <laughs> <laughs> with uh, Kevin Conaway here on Cover to Cover with Matt Tarko. We've just been discussing a track called Turn the Page uh, from Russia's 1987 record titled Hold Your Fire. We're talking about pretty much everything under the sun, all the complexities, all the themes that this band you know, presents both live and in the studio and it was a really interesting, you know, period, you know, where they were experimenting with different technologies that um that makes up this power trio sound. And, you know, speaking of um you know, just general experimentation, I mean, we're we're really we're going out on an island here. This band's really getting out of their comfort zone with the next track. Um Giant, yeah, they definitely giant are. Panda, um, giant Panda, real, Ty Sean. Yeah. Real quick, before we get into that one, I, I I just wanted to touch on a couple more things with Turn the Page. Oh, of course. Yeah. In that it's you know it, it 
it's interesting, especially with everything that, that happens to be going on right now. Um, yeah, the meaning that I, that I take out of that song is sort of that 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 uh, it's almost a balance between the past and the future. And again, it's kind of revisiting that live, live in the moment sort of theme. But it's also there's a there's a real element of you know we if we want to achieve the current the, the common good, we have to work together. We have to we have to yeah kind of come together as either a society or a species or whatever and we're you know, work together. Yeah. And it's, you know, right from the very first line in the song, nothing can survive in a vacuum. And that's, you know, to me, that, that hits me as nobody can just live and do everything on, on your own. You need, you need other people. You need, to, you need to interact with other people. You need to be able to work with other people. You need to be able to compromise with other people. Sometimes you need help from other people. And it's, and yeah, like nothing at all, no matter at all, no life can survive in a vacuum, and neither in, in yeah. a, a human can't survive and succeed in solitary you know, on their own. So, sure. yeah, it's uh, it's yeah, I think I think that's definitely a, a relation to what's going on at the moment. And there's another really cool uh, cool line in there that that, that a couple lines that I, in there. And, uh, that yeah. I'll, Paraphrase this in a minute of stuff, but it goes. Oh, uh, no, no, by all means. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, truth is, after all, a moving target. And uh, how can anybody be enlightened? Truth, after all, is so poorly lit. <laughs> I, <laughs> I, I especially love that last one because it plays on the whole light theme in the, in the line. I thought that was such a clever line. How can anybody be enlightened? Truth is, after all, so poorly lit. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> That's just Which, that's a genius turn of phrase. Yeah, it really is, right? And uh, and especially again, those lines really really fit with uh, you know some of the quote unquote truth that we happen to be here hearing from our leadership right now. <laughs> and and if this lyric was penned in eighty six or eighty seven, I mean it's yeah, I mean there was a, a lot less media that was available from a technological point of view at that point in time, but it's so, yeah, it's very apropos today. Yeah, you absolutely. Know? And and especially, too, when you, when you think about, you know, 86, 87, when he's uh, writing these lyrics, you know, that's, you know, the Cold War is going on at that point in time, and, yeah. and at, at that point, you know... Iran-Contra, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So there's a lot of nationalism sentiment, just like there is today, uh, yeah. going on. And there's a lot of us versus them and me versus you. And uh, and yeah, you had mentioned it earlier uh, earlier in the podcast about like 80s kind of greed that was going on too, with uh, you know the height mm-hmm. of Wall Street and capitalism and everything going on too. So there's a lot of like, yeah. again a lot of individualism that's happening and a lot of you know I have to get as much as I can. Absolutely. That was immortalized yeah. in that movie Wall Street with uh, Michael Douglas, yeah. and Charlie and Martin Sheen. Yeah. And Glenn Yeah, Hull. absolutely. Yeah. And and this song sort of flies in the face of that saying that, you know, no, you know, you have to work with everybody else. You have to coexist with everyone else. It's not just all about you. Absolutely. No, that's that is well well put. After turn the page here, we have Giant Panda or Tyshawn. <laughs> and this looks like, this looks, this feels like a real reflective point of view that if, 
you know, if if Neil, if this is a personal experience that Neil has had traveling to the Great Wall of China, or perhaps they've done it as a group, um, it's a uh, it's a cool tune. It's uh, it feels very um, autobiographical. It very much is. It's um, it's it's funny because man, this is one of the songs that turned off a lot of the the hardcore Rush fans. Um, probably more than any other song on this album, because like you said, it is such a departure for them. I think it's such a beautiful piece of music to me. It's it's just yeah. so nice to listen to it, like lyrically and musically, melodically. It's yeah. just it's a song that you can just kind of put on and close your eyes and just sort of be yeah. I don't know transferred. transferred it's a it's a very well. linear story too. Yeah. So I, I believe the story on this was that, uh, again, kind of going back to Neil being a spiritualist when it comes to nature, he also, back in the 80s, he got really, really big into bicycling. And uh, he, he wrote a couple of books about it, too. I think there's a book about um, bicycling across, basically across like a big section of Africa or something. And, uh, oh, okay. And uh, this, uh, this song happened to come out while he was bicycling um through China, and it's it's a reference to Mount Tai in uh, somewhere somewhere in China, and um, it's it's essentially just really about kind of the spirit spirituality that he felt on that bicycle trip, and just huh. climbing to the top of the mountain, and just really it's it, you know it's it's about as literal of a song as as they have on this album, where it's really just about kind of him climbing to the top of this mountain and looking down and seeing the landscape and just feeling the spirituality of of that of that right. view just all coming into him. But you know, it's um you know the just just to pick out just a little something here. I mean we've talked about how this uh this record is about instincts. He refers to instincts here again by saying clouds surrounded the summit, the wind blew strong and cold, among the silent temples and the writing carved in gold. Somewhere in my instincts, the primitive took hold. He's yeah. he's definitely getting back to, to to some roots of his existence here with this experience and and uh, traveling to the Great Wall of China. There's something that's much bigger than him by seeing just these ancient works. I think he definitely is. He's yeah. Just I've never been there, but man, I I think he's just. He's experiencing something <laughs> like like you just said. It's uh, it's something. It's some sort of spiritual connection with nature and the world around him, and just being there in that moment, being on that mountain, having gone through the the journey that he had to go through to get there, yeah. and seeing whatever the view is that he happens to be seeing, and the, the experiencing whatever the nature is that happens to be around him. Right. He's he's experiencing it on a higher level than with just his eyes. Yeah. And and that's what's that's what's pouring out of him lyrically in this song. Yeah, some higher level of consciousness. I mean he talks about raising your hands to heaven, you will live a hundred years. He stood there uh like a mystic lost in the atmosphere. And then he refers to, you know, the existence of forty centuries of history as he's gazing out from atop this mountain and he's experiencing just, you know, how, you know, possibly just like 
how how small we are as human beings compared to everything that's happening in civilization around us. Absolutely. Or even beyond that too, just you know, comparing our, our our own existence and our own trivial problems compared to the planet in general or the universe even. It's you know, everything that we think is so important is you know, really really pretty trivial in the grand yeah. scheme of things. Yeah. After Giant Panda or Taishan closing <laughs> track to this record is high water and uh what what do you what do you think about this track do you think this is uh this is a, a a good one to to close this record or is it um sort of or is it a, just kind of a standalone piece musically and and lyrically does it does it tackle some of these themes that we're discussing like time and instinct i, I think it's i think it's interesting that um the last two tracks on this album, I think, really go together in that you can sort of see Neil's connection to the natural world um, and, and the spiritual connection that he feels to that really coming out in these last two tracks, um, whether it be with, uh, with you know, like the mountain in Taishan or whether it's, uh, I think, in, in this song, it's more or less looking at his relation to literally to water and uh you know how how that makes him feel and i think i think he lyrically he even touches on almost humanity's history with water and and uh yeah. and into the very beginnings of evolution and you yeah. know, the first creature coming out from the sea which uh you know which was actually touched on in er, in an earlier song off of the permanent waves album called natural science about evolution and, and about humanity in general, and and I think he touches a little bit about that in this song as well. Um, yeah, I, I don't I don't know if the song really fits super closely with the instinct theme that seems to be running throughout the rest of the album, but yeah. I think it really fits well with the song that comes before it, and I it's it's it is a different. A little bit of a different sound uh, than the rest of the album. Just it's a little bit lighter. It uh, it it doesn't. It's a little bit lighter, a lot more atmospheric uh, kind of ballady, I guess. In, in a yeah. Way. Yeah. But it's it's such a nice note to end on. I think it's uh, you know it's. I, I get a lot of positivity out of this album or out of this song, and uh, I get a lot of appreciation for the world out of this song. And I think it's you know maybe maybe it was very intentional on their on, on their end to just end the album on you know when, when we talked about there's there's a lot of tension in a lot of the songs that precede it, but then you come to this these last two songs really, and there's not all that tension is released and you're just you're appreciating the world in these last two thoughts yeah and at the end of the day humans what comprises humans is about 90 percent water so it's almost like he (laughs) he's he's sort of implying that you know no matter what kinds of emotions you might experience day to day some just completely shitty and some are just these waves of elation 
no matter what's happening, like there, there's this idea of feeling like you've you've connected with the world in some mysterious way again by being exposed to water because it's yeah. who you are. I, yeah, I think I think there is uh, quite a bit of that in there, and you know, whether it's whether you're yeah whether you're talking about water being humanity or water being the the source of humanity or whether you're just taking pleasure in in being around water um yeah i i think it it fits different purposes throughout the lyrics of this song and um but overall the message is is truly positive throughout it definitely we're talking with kevin conawa here on cover to cover with matt tarka we're talking about Studio album, studio album, excuse me, by Rush from 1987, titled Hold Your Fire. And uh, Kevin, I'd like to close our conversation by asking you about cover art for this album. And uh, it's, as we as we know, it's you know it's it's here. You know, cover art is always supporting you know newly released music, no matter what format you choose to listen to to music, whether it's vinyl records or MP3 files. There's always that supporting piece of artwork. When you look at this album cover, um, what jumps out for you? Um, do you think it's a good representation of the music you're about to experience, or is it something that's just kind of uh, perhaps the complete opposite of what you might expect to hear? Well, I, I like your wording of jumps out. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> that wasn't intentional. <laughs> Uh, and it's got three 
balls forming a triangle that appear to be kind of three-dimensional coming off of the off of the the background and it's 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 weird it's you know i i don't know how to take it in relation to the the theme of the album or the name of the album but there's something cool about it there's something cool about the three-dimensional space that it sort of gives you and there's something cool about it when you're looking at it in relation to the rest of their album covers because the rest of their album covers have so many intricacies in them and then you come to this one where it's just it's so minimalistic and it's such a, a drastic change from everything else that they've done yeah. Um, now, beyond, beyond the album cover uh, and, and the insert, there is this really cool photo of uh, of a guy juggling three flaming uh, flaming balls, and, uh, and then in the backdrop, he's on this like darkened city street, and there's a couple of buildings and a car in the background, and it's it's mm. a really cool photograph because it's uh, not only is it just it's you know, not only is it done really well, but it also references a few of their earlier album album covers, which is kind of a cool little little uh, inside uh, thing there that it does. Um, yeah. yeah. But uh, yeah, but but yeah, just going back to the the actual cover on the on the outside, it's uh, it's 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 cool just just because it's something different. But I but I think that's that's one of the cool things about this cover being such a minimalistic, minimalistic design is that you know, if, if you look at really pretty much well, almost every cover that precedes it and almost every cover that comes after it uh, you know, you, you have a pretty clear interpretation of what the album cover is and this one being so minimalistic I think it really it lends itself to uh, to the interpretation of, of whoever happens to be looking at it, and it's, I, I think that's one of the things that re- that makes this album cover really unique. It's really cool. Kevin Conaway, it has been such a pleasure not just catching up with you today, but also you know learning more about Rush, talking about why this band and this record is so meaningful to you. Thank you so much for coming by and. Um, you know, just taking you know taking time out of your day to to talk about this band that's uh, that's really important to you, uh, probably your I would imagine your song craft as well. And um, just uh, thanks so much. Absolutely, thank you, Matt. I, I had a great time uh, having this discussion with you, and uh, I really appreciate you asking me to do this and having me on for it. All right. My special thanks to Kevin Conaway for taking some time to stop by the program today. For all of you listeners out there, thank you so very much, and please remember to hit that subscribe button on that device in which you listen to your favorite podcast, whether it's Apple, Stitcher, Google Play, or TuneIn. Take a moment to tell your friends and your family about the show. Let us know how much you like the show by giving us a good rating. It'll certainly help us appear higher in search results. And feel free to drop us a line at hello at covertocoverconversations.com. Intro and outro music of our podcast is produced by Jarrett Nicolay at Mixtape Studios in Northern Virginia. We hope you discovered some new music, perhaps rekindled your love for an old forgotten song, and shared a good moment with us as we continue to sonically explore a world from cover to cover.